Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. This is Jen from Yardley, Pennsylvania. Do what the cool kids do and get exclusive podcasts and more at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, it was known as the cult that thought it would be taken to heaven in a UFO. Why did members stay for two decades only to take their lives in a mass suicide? We'll talk about Heaven's Gate, the cult of cults. Then, a foreign diplomat is accused of raping a hotel maid. How did the case against Dominique Strauss-Kahn fall apart? We'll review Room 2806, The Accusation, on Netflix. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat detective, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, even though he's not actually that cynical in real life. He's not actually a captain either. The author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, who also wrote those books, host of the Strange Arrivals <laughs> podcast, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Roboti. <laughs> Toby, do you like how I just addressed all the listener complaints about your intro just there in that one tight... That was very nice. Yes. We should... A, uh, listener pointed out. It? We can just put it on Twitter. <laughs> Listener pointed yeah. out that you're not that cynical because you send us gifts. True. You're actually not that cynical in real life. And they also pointed out that I say the author behind instead of the author who wrote, which I don't know why that's a problem. But anyway, I just wanted to fix it for the record. Okay. It's about yes. time. Well, James Patterson is the author behind a lot of books, right? <laughs> but he didn't write a lot of them. That's so. right. I, I'm not providing 14-page outlines. <laughs> is that how that works? To recent MFA graduates. Yeah. Is that uh, it? Like, it's like a factory? It's pretty, yeah, it's a factory. Well, he puts out like 10 to 15 a year. And I think that's, he writes these very uh, detailed outlines, and then somebody like actually writes the book for him. Yeah. yeah. With some like exceptions. Every genre. Somebody does. Yeah. So I have a real question about that. Anthony Horowitz, who's like my favorite writer right now, is so prolific. Like he has two series going on right now, the Word is Murder series and the uh, Moonflower Murder series at the same time. And he's also writing like TV scripts and young adult novels. And he actually writes. The answer is cocaine. It. How does he Cocaine do is the answer. Cocaine. I'll tweet him tomorrow and yeah. say that, that's true. <laughs> I think like Nora Roberts legit like writes like four books a year. Yeah. And she just can pump them mm. out. Yeah, but her books are shitty and his books yeah, are really good. I, yeah, and his books are like clever. So how he comes up with that, I don't know. Yeah, and even like the Mayflower and Moonflower books are, uh, have um, in them, there's a book inside of a book. So for each of those books, he's actually writing two books. It's insane. Okay. Anyway, so before we lead off, Kevin, mm-hmm. we're doing something new tonight. We're meeting, right. we're meeting with our colleagues like everyone else in America is meeting with their colleagues. Via video conferencing. On Zoom. Yes. Instead of spending all this money on expensive studio links. <laughs> Which is really we're just, expensive. We're like, well, why don't we just do it like what everybody else does this and we'll meet on Zoom. I'm paying 13 bucks a month for this. We may as well use it for this. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly I pay for it because at my job, we have like two Zoom lines and everyone's always reserving them. And I'm like, why don't we just each get our own? It's like way easier. Yeah. You can have a meeting whenever you want. Anyway, so here we are. It's nice to see you, Toby. You look very nice in your vest. Thank you. Well, we couldn't even see each other when we were doing the uh, the, the Facebook video. thing. Yeah. I know. This is very different. It's very different. And it's good. You guys look very attractive. Laura looks very cold. Yeah, I'm wearing like this big bulky sweater out on the porch here. I just closed up the catio, so it's still a little chilly. Hmm. <laughs> it's like Brandon the Chickens. All right. Should we start <laughs> yep. a podcast now? Let's do that. Yep. Leading off, 
The basic idea of Heaven's Gate was that you would chemically and biologically transform your body, becoming a next-level alien, and then you would physically get on board the UFO, which would sail off into heaven. Most of the world learned of the Heaven's Gate cult in 1997. Its members believe they could get to heaven by taking a UFO. So dressed in identical outfits and sneakers, 39 people took their own lives when the Hale-Bopp comet approached Earth. This was a voluntary situation. They may or may not have been influenced, but we'll never know that. But at this point, this is considered a mass suicide investigation. But the tragedy was 22 years in the making as its two leaders preached a mix of Christianity and science fiction to its long-standing loyal members in a cult that used little coercion and welcomed publicity. There's lots of rumors that there's a connection with the Charles Manson family, that these people are going to commit suicide by starving themselves to death. They're being connected with cattle mutilations. This is the biggest cult story in the country. Based on the podcast from Stitcher and Pineapple Street Media, the HBO Max documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, traces the group's founding in the 1970s through the Internet age to explain the origins of the largest mass suicide in U.S. history. Filled with interviews from experts and former members, plus a trove of archival footage, the four-part series takes a serious look at a religious group dismissed as space cadets. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. And one other note for listeners, I understand that the end that these cult came to, this mass suicide, is extremely tragic. But we will be addressing some of the quirkier facets of the Heaven's Gate cult, and I don't want anyone to think that we don't think that what ended up happening. Comedy is mixed with tragedy. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of absurdity. There is. And we know. will be addressing some of that because the documentary but it's also, does. But it's also part of their legacy, exactly. right? So, exactly. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, Toby, I know that you are very familiar with sort of the indoctrination methods of cults. It's something that you've studied and looked at. The thing I kept thinking when I was watching this documentary is that Heaven's Gate Unlike every other cult we've looked at, the Roshnishis, even the uh, Bikram Yoga, uh, like every cult we've looked at, the Nexium cult, there's always like a male leader and a female co-leader, which there was here. But there's also always a tremendous amount of isolation and exclusion. And the thing that struck me about Heaven's Gate is that it wasn't particularly strict like people were coming and going did you find that unusual well i guess people came and went but when you were there it was fairly strict and that yeah. they were supposed to you know they weren't supposed to be in contact with their families and i guess at, at first they don't spend much time on this but at first it was it was kind of lax but then they get these what were they like 17 rules or something and it's it's really about you know are you willing to be an individual in any possible way because if you are you know, we don't want you. Like, when you take instructions, do you try to interpret them or just mm. do them as they're written? There was a really interesting part where T dies. You know, that, that that's obviously a big blow because that kind of is counter to the narrative that they've been building. Yeah. And, and that, that, every cult needs a strong second-in-command woman. Like, every successful cult has that. I swear to God. It's a thing. <laughs> so Doe does that sort of unusual thing where he lets, he lets everybody leave and go back to their families or wherever they want to go, and then come back. And they almost all come back. But that's kind of an interesting thing. And it's a little bit different than most cults, that they would give you that kind of freedom. And it's almost kind of like, you know, what the Amish do in that- Rum uh, Springer? Yeah. I mean, I, I basically know it through watching the uh, documentary Devil's Playground. But it's like you, you go off for a little bit, and you figure out if you want to be Amish or not. Yeah. And so I don't know if that was part of it or whether he was just so devastated he couldn't like lead or whatever. But that was that was certainly different than the usual playbook. I mean, the thing that struck me was they would talk about they reached out to ex-cult members who were still friends to ask them to do all these favors. <laughs> and I'm like, what other cult have we ever looked at where ex-cult members are still friends? Like that to that. Not being hunted unusual. down by private eyes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Now, Kevin, you also think it's an unusual cult, but for a slightly different reason about like they don't have like a a person like who's not an autocrat. The leadership structure is different. I mean, it's obvious that Doe and T are the leaders, 
but it's not like this autocratic leadership that we typically see in cults like a Koresh or a Jim Jones or a a, a Bhagwan. And I think at some point, right, guys, he, he uh, Doe says something about him being Jesus Christ or says something like that. But for the most part, he acts more like he's a teacher, but an equal among the people, you know, in the group that they're all learning together and they're all trying to do this, which is kind of a reflection of him. Yeah. He has the because craziest eyes, though. Of all he of does them. have the craziest eyes. And they all have these weird... <laughs> Rebecca's chewing the eyes right now. But I think, but a lot of cults, right, is a reflection of the leader, and I think there's a lot of that we see in Doe. I'm just going to keep referring referring to him as that, and I think some of it has to do with because there's like all these weird asexual parts of the their dogma, and the castration, and the no haircuts, the haircuts, the androgynous looks, the names that are supposed to be like otherworldly names, but. They really have no have Devote. no gender to them at all, right? Devote, Rabote, Tabote, and Lerote. Right, yeah, right. You know, I just, I feel like, and I wish they had kind of explored this a little more about Doe's sexuality, hmm. because they did, did, I, there was a, a, an incident where, you know, he f- expressed uh, feelings for another man. In yeah. the, and, you know, you got to think about, like, you know, in the 1970s when he's coming up, society still put a lot of shame on people who were gay and in the closet, and- People sometimes had problems sort of coming up with their own identity. Who am I if I'm not this or whatever? Yeah. I feel like that kind of, oh, I hate, I hate to say self-loathing, but well, but that whole thing, but I think that kind of feeds a little bit of what this dogma was about. Yeah. It's like a, a, deni- a self-denial. Yes. Right? I mean, this was a Christian-based Which fit fed into this whole Christianity. And, and I mean, thing, at right? one point, Henry, who like has studied cults a lot too, my son, was like, I think 39 people died because this guy wanted to have sex with men and didn't feel like he could. Yeah. Marshall Applewhite didn't like his homosexuality. And so he created a myth around that piece that he didn't like. He came to a conclusion about his body that it was abhorrent. I think they talk about how his father was a very conservative Christian, like, I don't even know what the denomination was, minister who was homophobic. Yeah. And I think being raised that way and, and, and being gay, I, I think there was self-loathing. And I think there is a history of religious leaders who loathe their own sexuality. The way that manifests is they get everybody to become asexual. Right. Now, Laura, the way this documentary is made, it weaves a lot of material that the cult members actually made. We should mention they were all mostly pretty technologically savvy. A lot of them learned to become coders and programmers, and that's actually how the cult made money. They did computerized illustrations <laughs> that we actually saw in the documentary. What did you think, Laura, of all the historical footage? Because they all had video cameras. They like taped all their events and their daily life, and they interwove their own art and computer graphics. What did you think of how this was all put together? I just thought it was amazing that there was so much documentation from when this was actually, you know, happening and when they were all living like this. And that the fact that we have these videos where we can see the people when, you know, they're so excited to get beamed up and you can see um, just how they're starting. It's like how dogs start to look like their owners. I'm like, they're all starting to look the same. (laughs) What's going on here? Like Angela Merkel? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Another joke I stole from my son, by the way. Um, But I think having all of that historical footage and video really helped for me bring this story to life more than just listening to it because you're actually seeing the people that were involved seeing the setting where they are, and then also seeing the inside of the house when, you know, we're seeing where the beds are when they did carry out the mass suicide, which was crazy. But the fact that they videotaped everything to me was just sort of bananas. Like, I'm like, you know, just like this propaganda. And then when they were like, they had a website. I mean, that's pretty early. They still do. (laughs) They're like, go to our website, heavensgate.com. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that was... uh, Pretty interesting. So I think, you know, I don't know if this would have been as, you know, vibrant if they didn't have all that extra uh, video. I mean, another thing that's very different about Heaven's Gate and other cults we've looked at is very often the stripping away of material possessions is part of it. Like the Rajneeshis lived like in a community and like mm-hmm. everybody shared everything. And some people were poor and some people were rich and they took the money from the rich people to like pay for everyone. And it seems like in Heaven's Gate, like... 
they lived pretty well. Like they made yeah, money, but... they rented mansions, they went on trips, they went to Disney World. Well, well, like they did things well, out in the world. Yes, right. But the, as as individuals, they were not allowed to yeah. have uh, individual possessions. Remember, there was the incident. We said, "What if I give you a hundred dollars?" Yeah, right. And it ended up everybody got a a wedding ring, and there was a ceremony, and that was really. Weird. Weird. <laughs> but it is a cult, so. But uh, yeah, I was really interested sort of in their, I want to know more about their finances mm. in the sense of how are they sustaining themselves? There was talk about there was a member who was a trust fund baby and they sucked a lot of that money out. But also, you know, they're also were renting like this million dollar house at the time yeah. of the suicide. They did that in, in like in succession. It, they rented I, a bunch yeah. of expensive houses. I mean, for the amount of time we spent sort of learning their beliefs yeah. that I think we could have maybe got a little more to understand sort of logistically how they were operating. Yeah. We, you know, the bits and pieces of it, but I don't feel like I, I walk away knowing that. I don't know if I got enough of that. Toby, we do hear from one or two cult experts in the documentary, and one of the things that really strikes me is there's a bunch of comparisons to Jim Jones in this documentary, which I'm not sure hold up, because it does seem like all of the members of Heaven's Gate, even the ones that give interviews who left or who survived because they weren't there when the suicide happened, they all seem to feel very comfortable with the end game, which was dying to ascend in this spaceship. Unlike Jim Jones, who, you know, they ostensibly felt comfortable with that. But when it actually started happening, like, you know, the members there didn't actually want that, most of them. Um, what did you think of that? I mean, do you how do you think this cult stacks up? And what do you think of the experts they included in the documentary? So I thought the experts, like the sociologists, I think is it's super interesting to have like these sociologists who embedded themselves early on with the cult. That's sort of an unusual perspective to somebody who to have somebody who's that sort of academically grounded and then also has first person experience. And you has know, has three months to give up to just let's go check out this cult. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you get beds, right? Yeah. And then you've got this guy who's like the quote unquote cult expert who goes from having like the groovy hair to the less hair later in life when uh, they talk to him. And he, you know, at first I was I was pretty skeptical about him, but the stuff he, he keeps to, he doesn't get too out in front of his skis, I guess, on that. But I mean, in some ways, it's more like David Koresh, just in terms of the size that they're dealing with. Hmm. Um, you know, Jonestown was a was a, like a town. I mean, there was like almost a thousand people there. Yeah, I mean, like nine hundred and something people. Yeah, and there's this whole journey they have to get there. What I, what I thought was kind of interesting is I couldn't figure out. You know, something's got to get people to join up to begin with. Like, yeah, you know, b- before you can be sort of indoctrinated, you have to have that first sort of kernel of interest, and. You know, with like David Koresh, you know, it's clearly like he could talk the talk. Like he could talk about the book of Revelation for like six consecutive hours and have these interpretations and even like biblical. He was charismatic. Like, scholars could were like, wow, he knows a lot about what he's talking about. Jim Jones, when he started off as sort of this radical uh, desegregationist who was like having the first mixed race church, as you could gl- glom onto that, this whole like Christianity and UFOs thing doesn't for me – like, I don't know what your entrance is in that way. And it's not like T and Doe are like super charismatic themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, towards the end when Doe's like talking to the camera, he's got all the special effects behind him. It's one thing. But when you show him in front of this, in front of the library where the two of them are just sitting and they're like, well, you know. It was like one of our author events at like a thing. local <laughs> library. <laughs> you know, and you see people like getting up and leaving. And yeah. then there'll be like a couple of people like, oh, really? A UFO? Yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me like the, the that story behind it. It's sort of like weak Scientology because there's also like a like a whole space alien thing with Scientology. Mm-hmm. And even in Mormonism, there's a thing that when you die, like you get your own planet or yeah. whatever. There's like some celestial. But it does seem like they don't really at least we don't see the case that they make. And it does seem like very few people actually end up signing up. And I found myself wondering, are people that signing up are people who just are really unhappy and like long to die. I mean, that is a thing that is part of, you know, part of our society is a lot of mental illness that sort of points people to like, they they're desperate to die. I I kept on myself thinking that Laura, what did you think? 
Well, I just, the thing that stuck with me, I'm watching, is the fact that these people were there for 20 years. Yeah. Like, I was just, you know, it wasn't like they signed up. I mean, this was a long time. And so I kept thinking, what makes you stay somewhere like this for 20 years? Castration. (laughs) Oh, jeez. And that the nocturnal emissions chart. All right, let's just talk about it. There's a whole... There's a whole episode uh-huh. of this documentary. The mission chart is awesome. Devoted yeah. to uh, inability to masturbate as being a rule uh-huh. and actual castration of one of the members. That Sawyer, who is our ex-cult member guy who sort of leads us through, apparently still believes. Yeah. That but was likes wanking it too much to stay. So it was done, but then Sorority's testicle sac started to get bigger. And, uh, you know... Getting a little iffy, and Sorority started to moan. And those said that he did a terrible thing. Lar, what did you think of that whole thing? I mean, it's not the first time that we've heard about you know you're allowed, allowed to have sex with like David Koresh. Basically, they were only allowed to have sex with him, and they weren't allowed to have sex with each other, even if they were married. But these people were just like it was like celibacy, celibacy, celibacy. No spanking it. <laughs> and actual castration. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, it was it was kind of fascinating because, you know, you're partnered up with whoever your pair is, which could be, you know, same sex, opposite sex, whatever. But then, you know, when they're discussing, okay, so now we don't think it, we don't touch. And at one point, that guy, Frank, the guy whose girlfriend stayed and he left, when he talked about hugging his girlfriend at the airport, it was like, what, like the first time in 11 years or something they had touched? Yeah. So... You know, already it's like this this seems a little odd, but when we get to the castration scene and Sawyer is like describing this former nurse who's now there who's gonna do this on site, I'm thinking like, why would they think this is a good idea? I mean, yeah. this isn't like just like, I don't know, stitching somebody up or doing like a little first aid. I mean, that's a massive surgery. And then the description of what happened to that poor guy, and they couldn't take him to the hospital at in the beginning. Yeah. Because then they would be flagged. Um, It was just kind of crazy. But, you know, then that combined with this chart that they were keeping, it reminded me of my mother and uncle went to this summer camp when... (laughs) Where is this going? (laughs) No, no. What did it remind you of, Laura? The nocturnal (laughs) emission chart. I know we have... coming back without your balls. No, no, nothing like that. We have a listener that's connected to the summer camp, but it's not... It was run by a pediatrician. And so at that time, like the children would have to like check in every day and they'd be like... Did you have a BM today? And they'd have a little chart. And if if they hadn't, then they would have to like do something. So it, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what was making me think of that. They certainly weren't castrating kids. At <laughs> I haven't heard oh, the word, words BM in a well. That's what it was. They would say when my grandmother would tell me the story, she'd be like, and they'd call in Wally and ask him if he had a BM, and he didn't want to tell them. You know? Oh my god, uh, Kevin, what'd you think of that whole episode? That was. Pretty much exclusively about spanking it and not spanking it and castration. Well, two things. Look, on one level, it's actually really important because I think it explains an awful lot sort of about the dynamic within the cult and and with the leader, as we touched on earlier. But not only does uh, Sawyer, or what's his name? Sawyer. Well, what's his his cult name? Sarodi. Sarodi or whatever it is. I mean, it's basically your, like, first part of your name. I got to tell you, our dog Briscoe has the best one. Briscoti. Briscoti. It's great. It's really good. Henrodi, Kevodi, Rebodi, Tobodi. I think Tobodi. Tobodi's pretty good. That's great for Tobodi Ball. And it's the right amount of letters. (laughs) Well, I think um, talking about the castration, I don't want to say it went on too long. It went on too long. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and I'm thinking about it a little maybe in the wrong. I'm a woman and it went on too long. Maybe it's resonating in a different way for me than it is for you. But then you you also have the animation and... (laughs) And you know, and I really like holding the ball. I, I really did like the animation uh, throughout. And then they get to talking about this scene, and then if you remember, dear dear listener, if you've seen it, they show they're talking about his recovery. You see a little, uh, you know, stick figure in the bed, and his knees are crossed <laughs> like he's oh god yeah it's not and good they threw the balls in the river yeah they, yeah, they panicked over the they panicked 
Wait, get rid of these. Get rid of the but evidence. Sawyer. But Sawyer, <laughs> can you I get prints off those things if they're in the water? <laughs> I found Sawyer to be so. They already looked like they're shriveled up. I found Sawyer to be so earnest. I mean, yeah. he seemed very yeah. sad yeah. that he did not go with them. Yeah, and he's telling the story, and he's like, "And then we had the ball. I mean, the testicle." Yeah. <laughs> Toby, what did you think of that guy's um, uh, musical skills? And what did you think of Sawyer generally? He was rocking the alien blues, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was hitchhiking down to Texas one time. And I saw a UFO down there. For the most part, I just find this whole thing just tremendously sad. Oh, yeah. The whole thing is just tragic. And I think he is like the most tragic living figure. I mean, they talk, they have two guys. They've got him who still 100% believes in all this stuff and, and just kind of feels like he failed essentially because he couldn't stop masturbating. And he got kicked out of the, you know, Doe told him to leave. So he feels like because he couldn't control himself in that way, he missed the boat to, to heaven. And he feels tossed aside. I mean, the way they portray him is like the loneliest guy in the world, right? Like when you yeah. see him, yeah. he's like sitting in the middle of a field by a fire or in a house by himself. So, and then the other guy. He's like they, living up in Vermont where uh, Laura used to live. Yeah. <laughs> Growing his own pot. Yeah. <laughs> the other guy who's got this speech impediment, which he essentially got, according to him, was when he got criticized by Doe for having too masculine a voice. Yeah. And then since then, he's just got this what seems like quite difficult speech impediment. He's got a stutter, yeah. So, I mean, they're both sort of tragic figures, but I, I think um, Sawyer really, he hits home, and then that the woman who's, when she was 10, her parents left, and were just like, yes. we're never going to talk to you again. We're off, we're off to this flying saucer cult. Yeah. You know, again, it's just, I'm thinking like, what if my son was like, I'm leaving, I'm never going to talk to you again, to join T and Doe in their flying saucer cult, and then so I don't I hear from die. them. And then yeah. eight years later, you know, he's he's committed suicide, a mass suicide. I mean, it's, just, it's awful. I, I just kept thinking, though, you know, the daughter that we saw a few times mm-hmm. in documentary who was like that, T's be- daughter. that beautiful the woman. One, she looks oh, like no. Molly Ringwald. Yeah, yeah. she yeah, looks totally like right Molly yeah, yeah. What was so tragic to me is that, you know, when she finds out that her parent died, she's not even mad about it. She's just like, that's what they wanted. Like, there is something about this. The reason I think it's incredibly sad is that there doesn't seem to be, even among the surviving members and the surviving family members, except for T's daughter, who's super pissed, which I do not blame her for, <laughs> uh, because she says her mother, her mother maybe wrote her some stuff that wasn't quite in line with what Doe later said. But it is incredibly sad to me because it really does seem like even the family members of these people have just kind of accepted, like, he or she or they wanted to die and who am i to say like they shouldn't have what they wanted like the man who shot himself after the mass suicide is terrible it's so sad but then again but nobody is um you know it's we're not getting the same kind of stuff you usually get around suicide which is like right you know what i mean well this this though is connected to brainwashing yeah which is part of most cults and is part of this cult to the point that even the folks that left for Different reasons, you know, they weren't excommunicated, um, you know, that they apparently were still, you know, on, on friendly terms with Heaven's Gate, even though they weren't in Heaven's Gate anymore. Running the website or whatever. That'll, that there were a few of them, tragically, that after they heard about the the suicide, they saw it not as a mass suicide. They saw it as their co-members did graduate. Yeah, And believed that they were on that that UFO trailing the Hale-Bopp comet and... And now I have to do that. I, I'm going to miss my chance if I don't also do the same thing yeah. and take my life. And people did. And it's um, it was just tragic upon tragedy. Yeah, it was very sad. And that Sawyer guy still seemed to feel like they were there and that they were waiting for him there. Yeah. At the end, when he said that, mm. I was like, whoa. Sawyer. Sawyer's got to love himself. Sawyer could really In more use, ways than one. Yeah, Sawyer could really use the help of a professional counselor. That's all I kept thinking the whole time. He could use a real helping hand. All right. Well, oh. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Heaven's Gate Cult of Cults? 
It's a documentary on HBO Max. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Heaven's Gate? Uh, Thumbs up. I do think. So it's four episodes. Um, I think that it was a little bit long. It could have been a little bit shorter. uh, But I thought it was really interesting because there was so much historical footage and we had people that had been in the cult that had left and family members and... um, You know, just to hear them singing their little song from The Sound of Music, um, I think is worth watching it. (laughs) Yeah, that was really something. That was some cultural appropriation there that they did there. Yeah. Tovo, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Heaven's Gate, Cult of Cults? I got kind of mixed feelings. I don't know if it's just sort of the time that we were watching this and and all things seemed sort of unsettled or whatever. But um, when it was over, I just felt very, very sad Yeah. in in a way that... Um, like we watch a lot of kind of sad and depressing stuff, but this just just really I felt very depressed afterwards, um, which makes it hard for me to totally recommend it if that's going to be uh, the outcome for other people. It's interesting. It's got really good archival footage. I think they do a pretty responsible job in not being really um, exploitive or sensationalist. It is a little bit slow. But it's basically, it's just this tremendously upsetting story about these people who believe some really weird stuff and, Mm. you know, are willing to uh, commit suicide because they think there's a spaceship behind a comet. So I'm sort of on the fence. I mean, it's it's a quality thing. I don't want to just give it a thumbs down because the people who made it, I think, did a good job. It's just the story is, is so troubling that I had a hard time with it. So thumbs up, I, I give but it a, I with give a, a warning. I give it a thumbs up for quality and a thumbs down for my mood afterwards. Got it. Okay. Got it. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm going with a with thumbs up. Not a huge thumbs up, but it was uh, you know some good you know some good storytelling here. I like Lara. I think that it might have been padded out a little bit too much. Episodes one and episodes four were really compelling. Not that the stuff in the middle wasn't good, but to kind of meander a bit uh, as we're learning, you know, more about the beliefs and cults and, th- you know, things like that. I don't know how much it was really adding. And also, this is an example of another podcast, which was, you know, optioned for its intellectual property, you know, uh, rights and uh, made into something for the screen. Some of our friends were on the executive producer list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and so when I compare it to, and I always am kind of uh, hesitant to compare similar, you know, podcast documentaries, because we've had a lot of those. I do feel like, you know, that it followed sort of the idea of the podcast, those 10 episodes, pretty closely, just sort of with new interviews. So, you know, overall, I'm a, like I said, I'm, I'm a thumbs up. I, I think I, the podcast might be a little better, uh, a little more concise for the, uh, not that it's shorter, but that I think it has, you know, more quality stuff packed into its minutes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, still still something worth watching. Yeah, I'm giving it a thumbs up. I share some of your critiques, Kevin. I don't feel like it was too long. I just feel like the time wasn't necessarily used super well. Mm-hmm. I would have liked more. You know, the castration episode, it was just the whole episode was that. No. I it mean, felt it, like it, it was. was a, it was a, a big enough <laughs> chunk right. that you thought the whole hour was about castration. Right. Yeah. But we didn't get things like the finances. And we didn't, like, I think about, you know, I always think of Wild Wild Country, which was great, but too long. Mm-hmm. Because there was too much detail about how they did things logistically. There was very little detail about how this cult things d- did things logistically, which was only interesting because of what this cult was. They were successful professionals with skills who had money and were doing all this. So I would have liked a little years, bit. Yeah, yeah, I would have liked a little bit more of that um, and a little bit maybe less of some of the sort of lengthy Sawyer interviews as could be cut down a little bit. But... That being said, I agree with Toby. It's a very, very sad story. And as Laura pointed out in her notes, it's times of great social upheaval that cults like this come to be. And I found myself thinking over and over and over again while watching this that we are ripe right now for like a new Heaven's Gate. I really feel that way. And, you know, I think it's relevant in that way. So it's well made, generally speaking. Thumbs up. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. 
That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Me. So, Kevin, here we are. You hear the music. How does that go? So we are in the business section. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to support this podcast on Patreon, what will they find there right now? Well, they're going to find the latest Crime Writers on After show. In which we talk about... Uh, remind me what we're talking about. Our pandemic our... handicrafts. Oh, okay. And we're also going to talk a little bit about how this show went. <laughs> we're going to give our own show. It's going to be thumbs a Thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes. <laughs> and a few other things that went we will on discuss along the way. Yes, That's I also have a follow-up on the New York Times Andy Mills thing. I have a follow-up detail that I want to share with you all. Oh, okay. All right, what else? So Rebecca Kevin? spills the tea. Also, we have a new episode of Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker, in which Laura goes on a an owl prowl. Nice. And uh, coming up later this week is our latest episode of Married with, with Podcast. Podcast. And we have a question from a listener who has painful intercourse. <gasps> I have been waiting for this question the entire time we've been doing Married with Podcast. Oh, fantastic. Wow. I am all about the difficult sex question. And Married with Podcast, of course, it's me and Kevin's, uh, Kevin and my, Kevin's and my advice podcast in which we talk about mostly about relationships but about other things too it's fantastic if you want to ask us a question email us at marywithpodcast.gmail.com so to find out the answer to that question you have to join us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash partners in crime media right now uh, you can you can get a monthly subscription but if you sign up for a whole year You'll save 10% and you'll get a telephone call from one of the four crime writers. It's like basically your full-time job now, calling people. I know. I got the uh, international telephone bill. Yeah. I was looking at it like, oh, God, we're <laughs> losing so much money calling the Netherlands. You're fine. But we love the pe- folks out in Europe, and I'm getting up early to make my Australian telephone calls. And Yes. We're, we're all meeting great people. So, Do you know what I just realized? The drops the same day as this show that we're recording right now. What? The next episode of I'm Not a Monster, which I am literally like dying to listen to. Anyway, I just realized. I don't think you know what the word literally means. I am dying to listen to it. Okay, figuratively. Figuratively dying to listen to it. It's a heaven's All right, Kevin, before we we move on uh, and lend the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints include, and this continues my streak of Jennifer's, Jennifer Beasley and Moira McClellan. Wow, bless you, Jennifers. I'm gonna go for 27. We have at least 27. Jennifers. Do you want to bless you again, just so it's oh, not yeah, interrupted? Sure. Bless, bless you. you. All right, and thus ends Kevin Flynn. The business, the business section. section. Moving on. I have an operator one five zero five. Hi, I'm um, gonna report a sexual assault. He was predicted to be the next president of France. She was a new American from Africa working as a hotel chambermaid. When New York City police arrested Dominique Strauss-Kahn for raping her in his hotel room, the story shook two continents. I wanted him to stop. He was like an, a, a, a monkey, an animal. That's how he pushed me inside all the way to the back next to the bathroom. In France, where political conspiracies and libertine attitudes about sex prevail, Strauss-Kahn was defended. And in the U.S., where money buys the best defense, the accusations of rape were spun into innuendo and blackmail. Dominic Strauss-Kahn was going to be accused of a very serious crime. It's a poor woman, poor immigrant into this country. I know by this time this is going to be a major international story. 
The Netflix series Room 2806, The Accusation, looks at what happens when one of the world's most powerful men must defend himself from a working class woman of color and how politics, the media and their own pasts complicate the investigation into the politician known as DSK. DSK. Now we are going to be talking about plot points for Room 2806. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. And a trigger warning for listeners, this conversation will include a discussion about sexual assault. Lara Bricker, initial thoughts on the rage scale. How did you feel about Room 2806? Um, This was probably the most enraging, maddening thing that we have watched in quite some time in terms of my rage scale. I was just so pissed off when I got done watching this at what happened to not only the victim in the hotel, but the victims in France that we heard from at the end. And just watching his entitled, arrogant attitude and being able to walk away from all of this, I was just, I was so enraged. So I would say I was at like an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Kevin, there's this idea that we hear at the beginning when the accusation first comes out against DSK, or as the French say. DSK. <laughs> that um, he is in no way guilty of this. And by the way, we should mention he claims from the beginning that it was consensual sex. Right. He doesn't say that they didn't do anything. Can't deny his he DNA claims everywhere. It, yeah. His DNA is everywhere. He claims it was consensual sex, although she is roughed up. It happened on a floor in a hallway. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, no way does that hold up. If it was consensual, why wasn't the sex on the bed? Why did they go down this long hallway? Why was she put on her knees? Why did she spit up the ejaculate? Why did she flee? Why did she outcry? Why was she highly consistent and cogent? So you look at the weight of the evidence and you put it on a, a, a sort of like a balance scale uh, that uh, that statement has no merit. But there's this immediate conspiracy theory that comes out propped up by even like the lawyer we hear from that he's being set up in some way. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's uh, a result of sort of the French politics at the time. And if you had told me then that like people could believe that oh, no, a, uh, a politician could have terribly bad behavior and it's fake news and it's all set up. It's a it's a setup by his political enemies. I would have said people would see right through that bullshit. But I have been corrected over the past 10 years and people will believe that kind of shit. So now I understand a little better about the domestic uh, situation of Vesca. I'm just going to call him that the whole time. Desca. Yeah. You do like the French stuff. You really yeah, do yeah. enjoy that. I did love, by the way, I should mention that this documentary is bilingual. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect that. I knew that it took place in New York and Paris, but I loved that sort of a full half of it was subtitled. It really, I think for me, especially being ADHD, keeps me looking at a screen when I have to mm-hmm. in a way that really worked for this. I will say that I think played to huge advantage in this documentary. Now, Toby Diallo, who's subject to the documentary, I will say her interviews are compelling. They're convincing. She has no reason to give these interviews or make this accusation other than the fact that it's true. That being said, it was very easy for people to poke holes in her case for various reasons, probably driven by money and conspiracy stuff. But I don't know if the documentary necessarily did a great job sealing those holes and saying this is why this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think given the opportunity to explain those things, like the people who are supposed to be defending her don't really do a very good job. I agree. So it's like the thing where the guards are like jumping around and hugging each other and doing little victory dances. Mm. It's like, well, they were celebrating a big sports victory. It's like, A, I don't, that doesn't ring true to me. And B... They did a little digging and there wasn't any big sporting event that these guys would be getting all that jazzed up about. So it's like, well, what's going on there? This video is is truly, for me, a moment of, wow, we just did the right thing. We feel good about doing the right thing, of protecting that employee 100%. 
That was weird. That didn't sit well with me either, Toby. Yeah, but but, but that, that nobody's excuse rang true. But that doesn't imply that she. But this weird thing about that, and I'll just say this: the guy celebrated without her. Right. So it wasn't like. Oh, I don't think anyone believes it. It wasn't like, like the three of the guy. three of them were high fiving she and the two guys about we've got it now. It's weird. Yeah. So uh, there's another thing. So when they're trying to be like, oh, well, she wasn't. Well, you think she got brought over from. Guinea and then came to New York and got this job here just so she could set up DSK. It's like, I don't think anybody thinks that. I mean, I think the theory of the people who are defending DSK is whoever's trying to set them up probably cast around to see who working there would be willing for a bunch of money to go up there and have and have sex with them and then accuse them of rape. Like that that's their theory. So setting up some straw man sort of something that nobody believes. Again, it's just kind of weak. Again, and I, I 100% believe her that that's what happened. You know, I'm not going to blame her for lying to get to the United States from a place where she was yeah, you know, no a way. refugee or whatever. No you way. do what you yeah. have to do to yep. get there. And the idea that that's held against her is ridiculous. My sense is that the people who are in her corner probably were not doing a good enough job to convince other people that they should take a chance on the case. Yeah. And then you have like the fact that the detective is friends with DSK's private detectives who are mm. working on the stuff. So I mean, it was it was a bad situation. I mean, I did find it strange that I mean they had one of the the head of security guy as an interview subject in the documentary. And the hotel like, security. Yeah, they yeah, didn't okay. like really dig into like what was going. They didn't like I. This is the reason why I love that Michael Jordan documentary so much. What's it called? The Last Dance. Yeah. Because they do the thing where they show Jordan the iPad of the footage and they say, (laughs) tell us what's happening there. It is the most brilliant documentary device I have ever seen in the last like couple of years because you A, get the person's thoughts, but you get the person's thoughts on what they're seeing, not on what they remember. So I think that if they had done something like that with the hotel security guard, they could have gotten like a real, he could have said something like, I don't remember, like, I don't know. Or he could have said something like... Well, that isn't who they... they no, I know the that. Head wasn't the head was Yes, yeah, I know but, that. But like, I think there should have been something like that to sort of be like, what do you think of this? What do yeah. you think of that? I, I would tell you, I don't believe that those guys were celebrating. They were, it was a setup and that's what, what they, they were celebrating. What were they celebrating? I think it's something completely, completely different. Yeah. Not completely different. I think they said something probably very roguish. Yeah. And insensitive about her, maybe you know about you you know something that you would wouldn't want to repeat. They were being douchebags for something completely different about the situation. That's a good theory. That's why. I mean, that's my theory. When I look at a bunch of dudes, I'm like, of course they made some blowjob joke or something like that, and they don't want to be caught about it. Yeah. I don't think they're like, hey, man, our plan to take down the eighth most powerful person in the 11th. world is 11th. <laughs> it's going so well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Laura, there is, I think, an undeniable power differential between DSK and Diallo. Like, maybe the widest we've ever seen in a case like this. Yeah. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that was one of the things that stuck out to me watching this is a theme that we've seen a lot over the last few years, but not quite as starkly as this in terms of the political clout that DSK had when this happened in terms of, you know, you've got this extremely wealthy and politically connected, internationally recognized man who's married to this woman who is extremely wealthy, so much so that what did they say he had like seven million dollars in his bank account or whatever it was. It was like some crazy amount that he just had already at his disposal to post bail. And then we have this woman who's riding the train over from probably one of the the poorer sections. The Bronx. Yeah. And, you know, and you see these, I don't know if it was actually a shot of her apartment or if it was like staged, but this very stark interior of what is, you know, shown to be her living situation and which she by the way we should mention was proud of i mean she came here she had a job that she loved Mm -hmm. she felt safe and comfortable where she lived and it was clearly like in you know either public housing or assisted housing in the bronx but she wasn't complaining about how poor she was she was at a point where she felt proud like she was in america trying yeah but then she was up against as you say laura like 
one of the most powerful people in the world. Like that's impossible, right? Yeah. yeah. And it was like, there was just no way even, and, and I was like amazed watching this, that she went forward with making the charge, with reporting what happened, despite all of that, because you know, like he's got the best defense attorney. He's got, uh, you know, all of this at his disposal. But it reminded me of, you know, things we've we've done about Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, especially in the Epstein documentary that we watched, where, you know, they had the drone footage of the girls that were his victims coming from the trailer parks and coming to work in his house. And it was like that same dynamic. But, you know, in this case, not going willingly, obviously. Um, Except at the end where we do then hear from the woman who had been working as a sex worker, who had been invited to one of these parties that he hosted in his hotel room. And we hear, again, just this like sense of entitlement that he has and how he's just like making chit chat. Like this is like totally normal. But then when you hear that contrasted with just the brutality of what happens to her, and again, she's like, I needed the money. That part bothered me so much watching that. I just felt like nothing sticks when he is called out for his behavior. And I was just like, ah! (laughs) That's the thing I kept thinking, Laura, was he was called out for his behavior at work. He was accused of sexual harassment and he was under investigation for it. And the board or whatever, Mm -hmm. the IMF cleared him. He was called out by professional women who encountered him, that young reporter who interviewed him and was sexually assaulted by him, and then her mother went public. Sex workers who say he was abusive to them, there's no reason to believe that this hotel maid would have had a different or not worse experience. I know that you thought a lot about the power differential and how that sort of played out in the in the press, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're right. The, the, the power differential cannot be overstated. You have one of the, the most powerful people in the world and one of... Eleventh. 11th. I, I think, think they said 8th or ninth. Right? I don't know. It's in the top 10. <laughs> it was very but, specific. But, you know, the other person in the equation is somebody who is, you know, for lack of a better term, is a nobody. Yeah. She's a, she's a, um, a maid making 25 bucks an hour. Yeah. She has no power whatsoever. And it is already, we know, so hard to get a conviction on a case like this because it is a weak thing to say, but is somehow extremely effective to say it was consensual or I didn't do it. The he said, make it a he said, she said, and then it makes it all the more difficult, especially if you have millions of dollars to spend on your defense. How powerful is your defense if you can suddenly spin the press, the New York press, that all of a sudden this rape victim is a con artist and they go after the victim and their response to me was well we have a source that says otherwise so we're going to go with the story anyway the front page of the newspaper calling this woman a prostitute you are pulling some pretty heavy strings yeah if you can spin that well it's not 1995 it's like 2000 and what it 2011 yeah i mean yes i will say the new york press has been spun many times before so i don't give them too much credit but they were eating up the whole thing about oh le perv right and all of to flip it all the way around toby i want to ask you about the french political ambitions of dsk and the way yes, that plays into all of the hand-wringing around how he was, I'm doing quotey quotes, treated by the cops after being accused of, let's say it again, a violent rape of a stranger in a hotel room. And there's all this hand-wringing about his political clout and his ambitions being foiled and his perp walk. What did you think about that? It's pretty similar to stuff that we've talked about in the U.S., right, where there's there's such a different justice system for, you know, the wealthy and particularly the wealthy and Caucasian. Um, you know, what I thought was kind of interesting, though, was when they do talk to, like, especially his buddies, in France, like there's this class consciousness that is different than the U.S. class consciousness, and so like we have like uh, what's his face in the Jinx, Robert Dirsch, 
Yeah. Like nobody's like he really harmed the rich people of the U.S. or whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. like no, he's, like, just, he's just a weird freak. Yeah. yeah. Um, Europe is different because you're talking about money and it's old money, right? And there's you know it's a long system of of having classes, you know. And so there's that one guy, one of his buddies is like you know he seriously harmed the political class in France. It's not just this thing with a rich guy and a and a, and a poor woman. It's like some kind of uh, costume drama that you'd see on, you know, HBO or something, where it's it's really this sort of thing that's taking place among the upper classes, and how's it going to affect like his relationship with his wife, and of course, all these powerful men have got many mistresses or whatever. Like that's to be expected. I don't know why you Americans have a problem with it. Yeah. The issue is that he's. You know, he's well, abusive. Current, we should <laughs> point know? out the current <laughs> president of France is married to his teacher who, <laughs> when he was in school, yeah. he had, they call it, an affair with. It's basically like- How old was he? He was a kid. It's basically like the Mary Kay Letourneau situation. How old was she? He was a kid. It wasn't like a graduate school So he thing. was like- He was like in high school. He was like 15 and she was like 25? Yeah, something like that. How many- I don't know the. I don't want to like. How many times is fi- how many times is fifteen going to twenty five? I, I just that's a math question. Stop it! All I'm saying is in and then we've had other. Who was the president, Kevin of France, who dumped his wife and she didn't know, and then she had to go to the hospital to be put in a coma to deal with her sadness. Like Fuck. this is a thing. Oh yeah, look it up. Yeah. Trust me. Look is it, it up. I mean, Sar- didn't Sarkozy? He was the one who uh, ended up uh, dating Carla Bruni, right? Or yeah, yes, yeah. so it was that Bruni. one. It was yeah. that one. But it's so funny. Every time you name a president in France, like the first thing that pops into my mind is some like really fucked up, romantic well, yeah. or sexual or consent situation. They never mentioned in this documentary what his his nickname was. Das K. What his nickname was? What was it? It was La Cholapin, which is the hot rabbit. Ah! All right. He certainly looked like a hot rabbit. I'll take <laughs> yeah, that much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out the Netflix series Room 2806, The Accusation, also known as Room 2806, The Accusation? I don't know which way to say it, so I'm saying it both ways. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary? So I think it was well done. So I, I would give it a thumbs up on that. It was, it was heavy material, though. But I will say, here's the benefit to watching this now. The world is a shit show right now. Yes. And it gave me something else besides the state of our country to be enraged about for the time that I was watching it. So in that regard, I guess it was a good thing to watch it. But it was it was pretty it was pretty awful. And I just felt so upset watching what happened to the women that he assaulted. Um, So. You know, it, it was well done. I think it is definitely relevant because I we've seen more cases like this with rich and powerful men doing things like this. But I would say don't watch it if you don't want to be further enraged and if you're watching your uh, blood pressure. The one thing we didn't mention in the conversation, Kevin, is that Diallo did win a financial settlement. Right. From DSK. DSK. Yes. Toby, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Room 2806 on Netflix. I'll give it a thumbs up. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that we didn't talk about, which I don't think is sort of intentionally in it, but it kind of stuck out to me, is that it shows you the imbalance just in the, I don't know if it's the brain power or the savvy or whatever that was available to the two sides. Because when you see the interviews with DSK's lawyers versus the interviews with the Allah's lawyers, who I think are probably good lawyers and smart people or whatever, but you could just see that they're kind of out of their depth, it seems. Yeah. I mean, they just, yeah. they either had a poor hand given to them or they just didn't have the resources to do better or whatever. So when you watch it, in addition to all these other things that set up a situation where she was, it was going to be very, very hard for her to win. When you see the people that they were working with, like, I just feel like that's going to be a bad match. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty good. It's not, I don't know, out of 10, I would say it's like a 7.5. So that's a yeah. solid thumbs up. What about you, Kevin Flynn? Yeah, I'm going thumbs up. I think it's an interesting look at a scandal that happens, you know, in sort of two interesting places and times where you have France has this attitude about being rakish and having no morals around sexual activity or sexual impropriety or sexual assault. 
And then you have a powerful figure there. And then the U.S. justice system and media ecosphere. Uh, so the, the whole thing coming together, it was an interesting look back and raging. Thumbs up to uh, Nafi Diallo uh, for you know stepping up and owning her truth and telling her story in this. I think it was great to hear from her. We never hear from Deska because uh, he's a because uh, he's guilty because he's guilty. There you go. <laughs> His lawyers won't let him do it. He just yeah. They said you've <laughs> it's, it's, you've done enough. So listen, that's not my opinion. It's true. It's, yeah. <laughs> so, you can sue me if you want, yeah, Deska. Go for it. Yeah, he's got he's got the lawyers. We know that. Anyway, yeah, I I think it's uh it, it's a rage walker. Thumbs up. Yeah, I really liked it too. I think that sort of the the bilingual aspect of it, as I mentioned, and the fact that it takes place as really dual stories in this one crime committed in the United States played against the international financial stage, which is not nothing. I mean, if you really kind of understand global politics, the IMF is one of the most powerful institutions in the world. It's more powerful than the UN, probably. They put the MF in IMF. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, playing on the world stage. But then also, Kevin, you mentioned, you know, laissez-faire attitudes toward sexual indiscretions in France. I think it's more laissez-faire attitudes just toward sex and it not being important, like whether or not people, you know, like to have multiple partners. But in that background, there's a rape. Right. Yep. And that is different than being somebody who's okay with someone having a girlfriend on the side. That is very fucking different. It ought to be. It it is different. And in France, it should be different. But in the upper classes, it all gets muddled together. And that is very relevant right now. Very relevant. When you think about the way powerful men talk about victims of sexual assault that they committed... They talk about it as if it's a girlfriend on the side, and it's fucking not the same thing. And that's why I really have to give a strong thumbs up for this documentary. I really liked Room 2806, so big thumbs up for me. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. A Quebec couple tried to find a way around the province's new nighttime curfew. Police in Sherbrooke questioned a woman who was out walking her husband on a leash. Oh. I already love it. Under the curfew, everyone must stay home from 8 to 5 a.m. for the next few weeks. There are exceptions, including taking dogs for a walk. While police gave them points for creativity, they also gave each of them tickets for $1,500. In an example of a scathing Canadian rebuke, officers said the couple were, quote, not cooperative at all. Ooh, that's a... Canadian burn right there. The wife vowed to not pay the ticket and proclaimed she won't pay any future citations. Fines for repeatedly breaking curfew. Kevin, I'm assuming this is COVID curfew, right? Yeah, it's COVID curfew. Can go as high as $6,000 Canadian. Panel, here's my question. This woman clearly wants to treat her husband like a dog. What trick should she teach him? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, To put toilet paper on the roll when... It's mm. used up. And to put it the right <laughs> direction. Oh, yeah. Toy Ball, what about you? What trick should this woman teach her husband? 
I was sort of going in the opposite direction in that he'd have to take a dump on somebody's lawn before he's left back inside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Keep walking around. Kevin, what about you? No licking. <laughs> or more licking. It oh, depends. Oh, yuck. I have to go, given our life situation, with maybe drinking less water out of a toilet. Okay. Maybe. All right. We should probably end on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We have a dog, a corgi. Thank God. Yes. I love the corgis and I also love dogs. I as love you know. corgis too, actually. That's that's a dog and I've talked- Because they look like cats with the stand-up yeah, ears. Yeah, and Ken's like, no corgis. I'm like, they're so cute. Um, so this corgi comes to us from Mary Locke and she sent it in and said, a little palate cleanser for the day. This is Corgi named Darby. She is my constant work-from-home companion. Whenever the anxiety from everything gets too high, she becomes a foot warmer who doesn't leave. She also has the worst gas of any dog I've ever had. Uh, Here she is with her favorite toy, Rabbit. And uh, she... (laughs) Does does one sentence lead to the next? (laughs) Something like that. Oh, I can't... I don't think you can see it. But anyway, um, you know, as, as the world has been just insane for the last week... I don't know about you guys, but my animals who are my work from home companions yep. have taken on a new level of like therapy animal. Importance, yes. And um, there are a lot of days now where I sit at the window with the cats in the morning and watch the birds because I'm like, I think I'm just going to become a cat. It's a lot less stressful. So, Laura, I know that this is usually when I start the credits, but can I just tell you a quick story that will underline the story you just told? So my therapy throughout the pandemic has been going for a long walk every morning with our dogs. Uh, Depending on the amount of time I have, it's either, you know, 35 minutes or two hours and 35 minutes. Yesterday, we were on a trail in the woods in our my favorite park in town. And uh, Stuart was eating something that clearly he shouldn't be eating. You know, they had that furtive look that dogs have. I went over to him and he had in his mouth a dead frozen completely intact frog (laughs) so i grabbed it out of his mouth as you do tossed it into the woods at which point briscoe our one-year-old puppy ran after it like a ball and swallowed it in one bite (laughs) that is why dogs and pets are the best companions for the pandemic and for coups because they just make everything seem unimportant Lara Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you to sell you their pet or farm animal or neighbor's pet to be cat or dog or animal of the week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. And of course, you can also put them on our Facebook group or email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and confirm that Tabodi is in fact the most <laughs> superior Heaven's Gate name. How can they find you on Twitter? At Tabodi. Paul NH. If only. <laughs> it's at Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, can you record the Zoom next time so we can see how great your facial hair looks these days? How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, but that's not as important as the group. Please support this show if you love it at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. It really does help us stay in business. You will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcasts, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the extremely handsome get better soon olivia burdett our executive producer is kevin flynn this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in bay st louis mississippi studio otherwise known as studio c the closet in our new hampshire basement where castration has been threatened on more than one occasion Mm. on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later Cocaine. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> All right, should we go ahead and start a podcast? Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> Deep cut. Shame <laughs> <Jennifer>. fan. <laughs> Slap. <laughs> Crime, crime media, media.
With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.